0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda Podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment, and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working, and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda.
1: I was motivated to write. Uh, both to people and particularly to um, those who are developing companies or who are working in the digital sphere to show them, look, it doesn't have to be this way, that you don't have to accept the rules of Wall Street's economic operating system as the underlying operating system of your technology, of your app. What that means is that company shares really are their product more than whatever their product is. And that's, A very much of a losing game. That's really just people trading in abstractions rather than in reality.
0: I'm very pleased today to welcome Doug Rushkoff to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Author, media theorist, professor, activist, Doug Rushkoff wears many hats. At the heart of his work is a common theme, how to reprogram society to better serve humans. In his latest book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Doug raises fundamental questions about what he calls the old extractive growth-based capitalism and calls out for new economic, technological, and social programs to create a fairer, more sustainable world. Thank you very much, Doug, for taking the time to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm currently reading your your latest book and throwing rocks at the Google bus. And I'm just wondering, could you tell us a little bit about why you wrote it?
1: Um, Well, I wrote it because I was... um... I guess I was getting discouraged by how poorly the spoils of the digital economy were being distributed to the people who made it possible. <laughs> you know, it it seems like a uh, a terrible missed opportunity. You know, I was I was around. Uh, you know, luckily, I guess, for the dawn of the internet age, when we uh, saw how these technologies were so biased towards peer to peer activity. And uh, a very d- distributed, shared, almost cooperative um, style of business and economics and trade and development. And uh, once you know, uh, well, once the dot com boom and bust happened, and then um, young founders of companies were uh, turning to venture capitalists for funding for their uh, for their ideas. I started to see company after company after company pivot away from the beautiful uh, uh, business uh, uh, strategy that they had to move away from the app or platform that they were going to do and move instead towards something very short-sighted, destructive, and economically extractive. So I was motivated to write uh, both to people um and and particularly to um those who are developing companies or who are working in the digital sphere to show them look it doesn't have to be this way that you don't have to accept the rules of the of Wall Street's economic operating system as the underlying operating system of your technology of your app that there is another way that's highly profitable and highly sustainable and a whole lot more fun and uh, a whole lot nicer to a majority of people
0: right that's a great vision so what be a few examples of those kind of enterprises
1: well a company say like twitter could have been one of those enterprises. You know, it was the, uh, the day that Twitter went public, and I saw my, actually my friend, Evan Williams, one of the founders, I saw him on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number $4.3 billion under his face, which was the amount of money he earned that day when, when the company had its IPO. And they, you know, they let the company ring the opening bell on the stock exchange, and all those guys in suits were applauding for them. And it hit me that this guy is fucked know that now he's surrendered all the possibility of this company to investors who want to see a hundred X or a thousand X means a thousand times return on their initial investment. But Twitter's actually an extremely successful company. They make two billion dollars a year off the app as it's currently configured, which is really just you send a 140-character message out to your subscribers, and you can put a little picture there. I mean, most people are familiar with Twitter and how it works, and the the idea that this company makes $2 billion a year should be inspiring because it's a, a, a very lightweight app that's not asking a lot from you and delivers a whole lot with a minimal uh, advertising distraction. Yet this $2 billion is considered an abject failure by Wall Street. Not because it's not a lot of money, but because they've peaked at about $2 billion. It turns out that $2 billion is about all you can make with a 140-character messaging app, at least at first. But this company is going to be forced to pivot or change or do something awful or get more greedy or take more of our data or do something that's going to make us just not like it anymore, all because its investors want this massive return. So in this same company, I see both uh, both models. I see a, an app that was developed, a, a very clever app that lets people exchange Information with each other that lets individuals broadcast to millions of people if they tweet the right thing in the right time or or capture a, 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 an abusive cop or a cop getting shot or, you know, whatever side of whatever battle they're on or or tweets from Iran during the, the revolution. Uh, you know, you can see. Uh, You can express yourself to such a wide group of people, and they were able to do it profitably in a way that should be sustainable for decades. Yet, at the same time now, this is a company that, by surrendering itself to the values of Wall Street, will not be allowed to exist in this form for very much longer.
0: Yes, it gets to the heart of this question, I think, which you discuss in the book, which is this obsession with growth. And I guess ties in as well with, with ideas that are around about monetization of different phenomena and how once you introduce a profit motive or financial motive into an array of uh, social relationships, that it can have a, a, a tremendously bad influence.
1: It's really what what the uh, CEO of General Electric back in the 1990s, this guy named Jack Welch. What he figured out, and what leftists and Marxists and all have known for you know a century, but what he figured out at the last minute um, was that he made less money selling washing machines and appliances to people than he made lending those people the money they needed to buy those washing machines. You know, GE had two businesses. One was selling the actual machines, and the other was the layaway plans—the you know, the, the the make payments to own. And he thought, well, shoot, if I make so much more money just lending people money than I do, uh, than I do selling something real, then I'm going to sell all of my productive assets. I'm going to sell my real industries, which he did and go into financial industries because I make more money making financial instruments. And that's really the way the entire stock market works. You make more money selling a technology company than you do with a technology company. So when an investor invests in a tech company or in an app or in a platform, they're not thinking, oh, this app or platform will make a ton of money. They're thinking, I can sell this thing. I can sell my shares at some later point. I can I can go go through what's called an exit strategy. What is your exit? The exit means how you get rid of the shares that you've just bought ideally at a profit. So what that means is that company shares really are their product more than whatever their product is. And that's a very much of a losing game. That's really just people uh, trading in abstractions rather than in reality. And it's what leads to these problems. It's what leads to New York City being unlivable because all of the apartments are really just investments of giant sovereign funds and Goldman Sachs. It, you know, we can't, as humans, we can't compete with, uh, in a world where everything that we actually need is becoming a commodity for some uh, financial
0: scheme. Right, right. And I uh, you mean, you highlight this problem, but it's for technology companies, but I think it's probably a, a similar trajectory for all kinds of companies. I mean, how does technology change this situation or should we say make the problem worse?
1: Well, technology exacerbates it in a couple of ways. I mean, one, it just d- digital companies can grow Really quickly. You know, you can, you can go from one user to a million users overnight. So the, the, uh, accelerated growth rate or even just this illusion of growth is very attractive to, uh, financial markets which are looking for ways of accelerating growth. They don't want to buy a company that slowly grows over 10 or 20 years, the old AT&Ts and Exxons and, you know, the big old companies that our grandparents bought. They want something that they can buy now and sell next week for a 100 times what it was. And these digital companies are a bit steroidal that way. You know, they, it's like they're pumped with with uh, uh, some kinds of uh, uh, of steroid that lets them – uh, grow faster than a, a real organic company would grow, they can grow exponentially because they don 't depend on human activity they don 't depend on actual human consumption in order to grow they 're uh, they're almost leveraged against themselves they 're like uh, they 're more like derivatives than they are like um, than they are like companies so there 's that. And there's also, it's being influenced by what's known as power law dynamics. And that's the way, you know, online, how there's uh, the ability for almost anyone to post a song to SoundCloud or iTunes. But even though there's so much more access to uh, music distribution technology than there ever was before, there are fewer Stars. There are fewer people making money on music than ever before. So there's a Taylor Swift, you know, or a, a Kanye at the very top of the pyramid, but they and they sell more records than anybody has sold before, but everybody else says, sells less. And that's very counterintuitive because we thought the Internet would be so distributive, everyone would have the ability, and we'd all be buying and selling from each other. But it turns out the reverse is true, that these platforms are very self-reinforcing, that once you end up in the top 10 list of a Twitter feed or a, an iTunes uh, iMusic uh, list – then other people see it and buy it and buy it and so on, and, and it, it creates these self-reinforcing loops where you get extreme winners and everybody else is the loser. So it happens with companies too. You end up with an Amazon or a Tesla or an uh, a, a Apple or a Google on top and millions of companies in, in the also-ran position.
0: Yes, yes, these winner-takes-all markets or companies and, in different ways. What needs to happen? I mean, all this potential was there. It's a distributed, you know, the internet, uh, distributed system in its most perfect sense, I suppose, um, although that might change if the, you know, net neutrality and so forth. But what can be done now to try and mitigate some of these, as you say, the, the drivers of power laws and things, to have those work in the interests of, as you say at the beginning, the, the contributors, the, the, the workers, the people, people who are giving to these platforms?
1: Well, I mean, the the solution, um, for better or for worse, it, it takes longer than a tweet <laughs> to explain. You know, that's why I wrote a whole book. So yeah, it still, it takes four or five hours to kind of, it really does, to absorb sort of what you need to know in order to undo this five or 600-year trend towards financialization. But, you know, briefly, the kinds of things I, I show people you know how they work and how to do is uh, are are really principles for making other people rich. You know what what we have to do as as businesses and individuals is realize that if you make your money by extracting it from a marketplace, then it's going to be harder to make money the next day. You know so when a Walmart or a, a big store goes into a town and says, "How can we put all the local businesses out of business so that everyone has to come to us not only for their goods, but for their employment. And once they come to us for employment and we're the only employer left, then we can hire them all as part time and not give them any benefits so that you know the social welfare will have to pay for all of that. Um, when you take that kind of scorched earth attitude towards your market, you end up killing the goose. You end up killing the economy, the marketplace on which your business is actually depending for long-term sustainability. So what I'm arguing is, and it seems counterintuitive at first, but what I'm arguing is don't bankrupt your customers. In other words, don't kill them. Don't kill your market because when you kill your market, it's gone. You can't take any money. Instead, what we should be doing is Optimizing our economy, not for the extraction of capital from markets, but for the velocity of money. How do you increase the number of transactions? So rather than taking $10 off the table permanently and shoving it into your share price, how can you make the same dollar 10 times? That, and, you, and you'll make the same in revenue. You'll have the same revenue number on your balance sheet, but you'll have done it without just taking everything away, without removing currency from the system and then just sitting on this money. So I'm looking at, at different ways of doing that. When, uh, I, I show how you can uh, adopt the, the principles of a family business that's looking more towards long-term prosperity and sustainability than short-term shareholder growth. Um, I'm looking at... Uh, different kinds of experiments if you're a big company you can't just turn on a dime but you can do little trials little experiments that demonstrate to your shareholders, really, that there's other ways to make money besides just taking money out. If Walmart just even put a, a one shelf in their store, you know, one aisle that had locally produced goods, it would completely change the economic impact of the company. You know, I look at things like bounded investing. How can you invest in something that's not far away but actually benefits you? So the U.S. steelworkers, for example, they took their retirement fund and they invested it in construction projects that hire steelworkers. You know, when people originally thought, oh, my God, isn't this illegal? Isn't this corrupt? It's like, no, it's double dipping, but it's double dipping in an appropriate way. So now you take money and you've got it invested for your retirement. But you also get that money right back again as salary because you've invested in a project that's going to hire you. You know, this is not um, stupid. It's just uh, or illegal. It's just circulatory. And I'm also looking at platform cooperatives. How can the workers own a piece of the business? Even the Republicans in the U.S. put that into their platform because they realize that worker ownership, you know, is really the key to making them not just feel but be actual participants. If the drivers of Uber owned Uber, then even though they're squeezing themselves on salary, they'll be making it back on the other end. As shareholders, even though they're doing the research and development for a robotic car company that's going to put them out of work, they would be shareholders in those robots when they are unemployed
0: powerful ideas ones that are growing but I mean these some of these ideas have been around for a long time you know the cooperatives and things like that paraphrase I guess William Gibson you know that a, a, not the paraphrase to paraphrase uh, to twist it but you know a sustainable economic model is already here it's just not evenly distributed <laughs> you know there are examples but they do seem to be in the minority and these large behemoths the you know large corporates and you know although there's evidence that many are already seeing the light on this and investors but generally you know you know the kinds of things you're talking about are really fringe notwithstanding their potential do we get to a stage where they go beyond you know great e- exemplars into something that is really a movement or something that is really creating change
1: yeah i mean they already are i mean it's funny it's like uh now the argument is oh well these things are small you know, they're growing slowly. Um, whereas 10 years ago, if I talked about this, people would just say, Oh, you're a crazy communist nut, the Soviet Union fell, and this doesn't work. So now people understand, oh, worker ownership doesn't necessarily mean Soviet style dictatorial communism. You know? So I think we're making tremendous progress, you know, whether we're making it fast enough, to uh, uh and and obviously these things are all related but you know whether we're doing it fast enough to avert climate disaster well that's kind of another story you know if the the the, uh, the sort of the planetary carrying capacity um is not up to the challenge of um an expansionist market policies we can't grow the market um and and dig enough stuff out you know and use enough energy we can't do that um with our with our our current relationship just to the physics of of, of our planet so that's you know <laughs> that that is a valid uh, question on whether it's fast enough but um, while while I'm not generally an optimist I'm you know way more hopeful now than I was you know five or ten years ago people are recognizing this people at the top I was just I met would they friggin UN yesterday that's looking at you know how can they're looking at how can the uh, blockchain be used to orchestrate um you know, like feeding people in developing nations, providing identity for people that don't have banks, um, they're, uh, they're actually thinking in, in these ways. I'm going to Fortune 100 companies and talking to them about worker ownership and uh, moving from share growth to dividends so that they don't, you know, uh, they don't get as much pressure from their investors to grow when growth really shouldn't be the object of the game. So I'm seeing a willingness to explore this from all sides because corporate America, whether they're admitting it or not, they know that they can't grow anymore. They're stuck. You know, Corporate profit over corporate size has been going down for 75 years. That means they're really good at getting big, but really bad at deploying the assets that they've accumulated. So they're just sitting on these piles and piles of useless money. They can't use it. Um, they, They know that their model is bankrupt. They know that their time is limited. So they are willing to look at ways of unwinding from the financialization of their industries and figuring out how to create value again.
0: Yes. You say you're not an optimist. Sounds you're, you're reasonably optimistic. I suppose, uh, putting it the other way, you're not a, a pessimist, maybe, on, on the development of these new trends and things. What about the role of technology? It's often invoked, and particularly now, uh, there are many people around who say that, you know, technology will save us when it comes to climate change and so forth. It seems like in a similar way that an idea that, you know, a rising tide would lift all boats without any real analysis of the mechanisms for which, how that happens. Is there, you know, a danger of assuming that, you know, technology will save the day? And and given the fact that I suppose that much of the technology that gets developed now gets developed with the view to these big jackpot uh, wins at the end of the day?
1: Well, there's a danger of assuming anything. You, (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's our underlying assumptions. That end up doing us in, especially if we don't realize that we've assumed them. <laughs> you know, the the assumption by a company that growth will keep growing no matter what is a dangerous assumption. The you know, the assumption by young developers that the only way to to move forward is to uh uh you know find a venture capitalists to uh to overfund and overvaluate your company um, is a is a silly assumption. Um, so. Uh, the, the certainly the assumption that technology is some um, um, salvation is ridiculous. The people that put too much faith in technology are, um, you know, the sort of the Extropian Singularity people. The Ray Kurzweil, the people at Google, like Ray Kurzweil, who's one of their chief scientists. I think they call him now. You know, these folks actually believe they are building the infrastructure for the next form of evolution. They see human beings as temporary and computers as the things that will replace us. So they really just, they're putting so much faith in technology that all they're really hoping for is to be able to upload some portion of their consciousness to the machines before the machines take over. And that, you know that dovetails just too neatly with the agenda of corporate capitalism and infinite growth and you know evolution doesn't happen like that <laughs> these people are a little misguided and and uh, and certainly to push to try to make that happen um it it assumes that we know and we know human's limit humanity's limits that we that we've done everything we can do and that we might as well just surrender the planet to this next uh form of non-life And that's uh, that's sad, you know, and when I bring this up to those people, they say that I only say this because I'm a human, you know, as if it's some some form of hubris, you know. And and so that's why, you know, now that's why I'm using the language of team human. You know, I am on team human. I am a a digital humanist, you know, and I think that that digital technology should be directed towards benefiting human beings and the, the natural planet. On which we live rather than dedicated to, you know, very abstracted systems that we know, you know, abstracted systems like uh, uh, stock market and capitalism, which we know if uh, let, uh, let uh, to proceed um, without intervention um, will destroy the environment, will destroy, um, will make this place unlivable for humans at any rate.
0: Right. So maybe one last question. I just, what is your vision then for a distributed democratic economy? I mean, looking over the next, I don't know, what kind of time horizons? Meaningful to look at that question, or do you think about it like that?
1: I don't know that I do. You know, I'm I'm not a utopian uh, in that way. So I'm not like looking at a, a an end state. I'm thinking about things, I guess, very incrementally. Um, so yeah, I'm just hoping that people become uh, kind of more conscious. Of the ways that their activities are either kind of promoting the agenda of team human or promoting the agenda of something that's quite anti human, you know, and then figuring out how do we incrementally um, shift those behaviors, shift those policies so. You know, it could be anything. And, you know, sometimes there's big wins and sometimes there's little ones. You know, one thing I'm I'm pushing for now in the States is to have them reverse the tax code so that instead of punishing dividends and rewarding capital gains, we reward uh, revenue income, salary, and we punish capital gains. You know, that seems like a really simple one if what we want to do is... Promote the velocity of money and circulation of money rather than the extraction of money. So, you know, and we'll see. If there's a win like that, then that will have a huge trickle effect and accelerate a whole lot of stuff. You know, meanwhile, if I can get one Fortune 500 company to give 10% of its shares to its employees, you know, that's a small win, but uh, it's still a win.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So just tell me, I guess, finally about a little bit about the Team Human project and what are your aims there?
1: Well, the team human is is a podcast and a website, and the idea it's similar to yours in some ways. I mean, what I'm looking at is uh how to share uh strategies for conscious human intervention. In uh, the socioeconomic machine. You know, how do you do debt resistance? How do you do a local currency? How do you do a community supported agriculture? How do you turn around a, comp- a company that you live in? How, do you, uh, uh, how can we understand the actual environmental impact of the supposedly clean digital media that we use? And so it's a, it's a website to or a, a podcast to explore the ideas and then a website for people to follow it up. Because, you know, after I wrote this book, this Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus book, I've been getting hundreds of emails a day uh, for requests for help. Will you please come out to our town and help us start a local currency? Or will you come to our company and do this? Will you do that? And, I mean, some of them are even, you know, people who are willing to pay to, to get these services. So what I'm looking... I'm trying to figure out how to do is get a list uh, uh, an almost we have something called Angie's list here or Craig's list, a list of um, kind of new economic or sustainable economic practitioners to help these companies and towns do the things they want to do, you know, form benefit corporations and uh, form worker cooperatives and turn over. If people want to turn over their companies to their workers, that's a big movement now. A lot of boomers who are realize there's such a tremendous tax benefit in turning their company into a worker cooperative when they retire that there's a huge demand for it. But I've got to find lawyers who are willing to be paid their normal fees to do these things. And there's just not that many qualified lawyers who understand um, these, these sort of new economic mechanisms.
0: Wow. That's a brilliant vision. When is this happening?
1: I'm launching, uh, hopefully, you know, by August, I'll have this thing up, uh, you know, teamhuman.fm is where we'll put it. Because I think FM is, is podcast-like.
0: Yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> There's quite quite a quite a lot of FMs out there doing good podcast work. Thank you so much, Doug, for taking the time to speak to the Sustainability Agenda and to share your vision and thoughts on these important questions. And I wish you the very best of success. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.